Thank you very much. And thank you, especially all of you who, in fact, have made the trek out here to Allendale. It's a pretty trip, but it is a trip, and uh, I appreciate your making the effort. And again, particularly also to the, to the younger folks in the audience who, who made a cultural trip uh, over, over here. I appreciate that as well. I once heard the uh, distinguished uh, historian Ted Morgan, who was himself a naturalized American, he was born in France, uh, recount an unlikely encounter that he had with uh, William Faulkner. Uh, Morgan was a very young man. It was November of 1950, um, and Faulkner was returning by way of Paris after receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, somehow, Morgan and his classmates had prevailed on the literary lion to address a student gathering at the Sorbonne. Unfortunately, the Nobel ceremony in Stockholm had been, uh, in Faulkner's well-chosen words, as long as a Mississippi funeral, <laughs> prompting the writer to dose himself liberally with bourbon, his medicine of choice. Consequently, the welcoming committee discovered the great man at his hotel somewhat the worse for wear. After being plied with copious amounts of black coffee, Faulkner was hustled off to the auditorium and a rapturous greeting from his young admirers. At length, the cheers subsided, an air of anticipation filled the room. The speaker did not disappoint. The big difference between Europe and America, said Faulkner, is that we are still adding stars to the flag. He then slumped over, his speech concluded. <laughs> but not, I think, before he managed to say something profound about the American Republic and its optimistic inhabitants. For most of us, the United States is indeed a work in progress. Our history resembles nothing so much as an escalator that silently, almost effortlessly, carries each succeeding generation to new heights of prosperity, knowledge, and justice. To most historians, on the other hand, the national experience is less an escalator and more a revolving door, a cyclical round of class conflict marked by alternating periods of heroic aspiration and crass materialism. Think of the progressive era dominated by Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson in contrast to the heedless 1920s, or FDR's transforming if improvised New Deal versus the prosaic age of Eisenhower. About most of this, a healthy debate rages. Only one chapter, I would submit, in American history inspires near universal derision and a considerable amount of embarrassment. The years from Appomattox to San Juan Hill, roughly bracketed by that soldier-turned-politician U.S. Grant and that politician-turned-soldier Teddy Roosevelt, those years have become synonymous in both popular and scholarly imagination with parvenu wealth, stifling convention, and officially sanctioned thievery. At once ruthless and sentimental, they stand in scandalous reproach to the high and holy work of abolition and the new birth of freedom proclaimed at Gettysburg. Welcome to what the poet James Russell Lowell dubbed the land of broken promises. As wartime idealism recoiled upon itself, the bitterest reproaches came from the best of men. In a mock catechism written two years before his minor novel, The Gilded Age, inadvertently christened the era, 
Mark Twain scolded his materialistic countrymen. In Twain's words, quote, What is the chief end of man? To get rich. In what way? Dishonestly if we can, honestly if we must. Who is God, the one and only and true? Money is God. Gold and greenbacks and stock, father, son, and the ghost of same. Henry Adams, the son and grandson of American presidents, gave still more savage voice to the betrayal felt by those of his class. According to Adams, it was very easy to disprove conclusively Darwin's theory of evolution. Uh, all you had to do was trace the line of presidents from Washington to Grant. <laughs> more recently, some historians and journalists uh, and a few gadflies have found a receptive audience for their gloomy claims that we are inhabiting a new Gilded Age, to which I am tempted to reply, you should be so lucky. Between 1865 and 1900, the rate of American illiteracy was cut in half, notwithstanding the enormous explosion in immigration. Expenditures on education during that same period tripled. College enrollment soared by 700%. Still more impressive was the multiplication of public high schools from 100 in 1860 to 6,000 four decades later. During the same period, 69 land-grant schools, including Michigan, California, Illinois, and Wisconsin, came into existence. The same tycoons stigmatized as crass monopolists poured their fortunes into Chicago, Stanford, Duke, Northwestern, and Vanderbilt. Refuting the conventional view of an era hostile to the working man, the average work week shrank from 70 hours at the outbreak of the Civil War to less than 60 by the end of the century. The struggle for sexual equality paralleled that for economic justice, as a booming market developed for typists, stenographers, and telephone operators, almost all of whom were women. Mount Holyoke, Vassar, Wellesley, and Radcliffe opened their doors to female scholars. In 1869, the legislature of Wyoming Territory granted women the same voting rights enjoyed by males, who outnumbered them six to one. A generation later, when the territory's admission to the Union was imperiled by its commitment to female suffrage, the loudest protest came from the men of Wyoming, of whom a sizable contingent telegraphed Washington, quote, we may stay out of the Union a hundred years, but we will come in with our women. As brash, boastful, and ill-mannered as most adolescents, post-Civil War America witnessed an eruption of ideas and energy unmatched in the national story. In the 30 years between 1860 and 1890, 450,000 patents were issued. That was 12 times the total number since the birth of the nation. Everywhere sped up in ways unmistakably like our own frenetic years. A nation without telephones in 1875 counted one and a half million by 1900. The telegraph system, internet of its day, strained to carry a million messages in the year of Appomattox. By 1900, the humming wires accommodated 63 million telegrams a year. During the same period, the number of American newspapers quadrupled. Do modern Americans feel enthralled to the information revolution? Are our lives permanently stuck on fast forward? 
If so, we are no more frazzled than the generation which annihilated distance in 1866 by stringing the Atlantic cable between Europe and America and listened dumbstruck to Thomas Edison's talking box, what we call the phonograph, while completing a transcontinental railroad to bond a nation still nursing the wounds of fraternal war. But what then of Henry Adams' waspish lament about the parade of Civil War generals who went on to occupy the White House? Writing in the 1930s, Thomas Wolfe, that other Tom Wolfe, dismissed them as the lost Americans, quote, whose gravely vacant, bewhiskered faces mixed, melted, swam together. Which had the whiskers, asked Wolf, which the Burnsides, which was which? A group of bearded non-entities is what most of us have been led to believe. They may have worn blue on the battlefield, but in the history books, they appear relentlessly gray. To modern historians, the great crime of most 19th century presidents is their stubborn refusal to behave like most 20th century presidents. 20th century presidents dominate their times. They dictate to Congress. They monopolize the media. They pursue a frenetic activism demanded by a nation of satellite dishes. They approach the Constitution not as a limiting document, but as an enabling one. And that's just for starters. Almost everything about politics in the Gilded Age stands current convention on its head. It was a time when Republicans were radical and Democrats reactionary when liberals flirted with laissez-faire and conservatives rallied under the nationalist banner. It was also a time when people, frankly, uh, defined themselves much more than they do now by their partisan loyalties. Um, it's easy to laugh at the Gilded Age, at mugwumps and scalawags and half-breeds and stalwarts, but the fact is, if you simply look at how many people participated in the political process, they put us to shame. In 1896, more people turned out in person to see William Jennings Bryan than turned out a century later to see Clinton, Dole, and Perot combined. 750,000 people got on trains and went to Canton, Ohio, where William McKinley conducted a front porch campaign. Um, then there's the conventional view of Victorian women, uh, particularly political women, as mere ornaments. It is true, Grover Cleveland's sister Rose, before President Cleveland married in the White House, uh, he was a bachelor and he had his sister Rose serve as his first lady. She was an accomplished scholar and she almost died of boredom. She confided to her friend the only way she managed to survive brain-numbing reception lines was by conjugating Greek verbs while shaking hands. <laughs> yet, yet, this was also the age of Frances Willard and Susan B. Anthony, the latter of whom scandalized her neighbors in Rochester, New York, in 1872 by voting for straight Republican ticket. Today, of course, the, the scandal would be not that she voted, which was illegal uh, at the time, but that she voted Republican. Um, <laughs> Actually, Ms. Anthony had good reason to embrace the GOP in 1872, given the tactless observation of that year's Democratic candidate for president, the great reforming newspaper editor Horace Greeley, who said, quote, the best women I know do not want to vote. <laughs> Ms. Anthony was hardly more satisfied with the candidate she did support. 
After Ulysses Grant appointed 5,000 members of her sex to serve as postmasters, he plaintively asked her, isn't that enough? <laughs> On the contrary, Ms. Anthony told the president she sought, quote, justice, not favors. For historians, it is not enough to unearth fragments of the past. They must then imagine them assembled in something approaching life. So I ask you, take a few minutes and try to imagine, if you can, another America. The America of 1876, a simpler, slower land whose citizens do not automatically look to Washington to solve their problems or to the man in the White House to feel their pain. Indeed, much of their pain can be traced to greedy or short-sighted politicians in Washington who would plunder the public treasury even as they squander the moral high ground won at such terrible cost on a thousand fields of battle north and south. Now, consider the fate of the last three American presidents. Lincoln assassinated, Andrew Johnson impeached, Ulysses Grant tainted by the corruption of his associates. America in 1876 is a land emotionally drained by a quarter century of moral agitation, fraternal warfare, and post-war disillusionment. As with Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s, Americans in the Gilded Age desired nothing so much as a respite from turmoil. It was that hunger for reconciliation, even restoration, as Andrew Johnson called it, over genuine reconstruction that Grant captured perfectly in his Delphic utterance, let us have peace. It's a great soundbite. It's a great slogan. No one knew what it meant, which is why it's such a great slogan. Um, if you're in the North and you fought under the general, uh, you, you have utter confidence that Ulysses Grant when he says, let us have peace, means let us enjoy the fruits of our hard-worn victory. If you're in the South and you hear Ulysses Grant say, let us have peace, uh, all sorts of wishful thinking kick in and you, you, you take it as a code word for I'm willing to uh, wink and nod and, and let you restore as much of the post-war or pre-war society uh, as, as, uh, as possible. Grant, then and now, is the great American puzzle. His horror of bloodshed was matched only by his hatred of profanity. The man who earned renown as the first exponent of modern warfare, denounced by critics for more than a century as a butcher, grew sick at the sight of an underdone steak or a Mexican bullfight. Hopeless in civilian life, on the battlefield, Grant forgot his insecurities. Find out where your enemy is, he once explained. Get at him as soon as you can, strike at him as hard as you can, and keep moving on. At Shiloh and Vicksburg, Grant had no difficulty finding his enemy or striking with maximum force. In the presidency, he seemed out of his depth, a sphinx-like figure whose silences masked not hidden reserves, but an almost total vacancy of ideas or vision. As Edmund Wilson wrote of the feverish post-war years, it was the age of the audacious confidence man, and Grant was the incurable sucker. Perhaps it is no accident that Grant's favorite book was Innocence Abroad. In time, his name would enter the language in ways hardly imaginable to the hero of Appomattox as Grantism became a byword for official corruption. His Secretary of War escaped conviction for bribery by a timely resignation. His minister to Great Britain, after marketing worthless mining stock to gullible Britons, had resorted to diplomatic immunity 
to evade British justice. Under Grant, post office contracts went to carriers who offered the highest kickbacks. His vice president, not to mention the Speaker of the House, and a dozen other members of Congress were implicated in the credit mobilier scandal in which railroad promoters enriched themselves through millions of dollars in government bonds. Remember, after the war, I mean, beginning during the war, it was decided to build a transcontinental railroad. Wonderful. Uh, great engine of, uh, of national unity, if you will, but also opening the door to corruption on an unimagined scale because basically the federal government decided to give away to the railroads uh, an amount of land larger than the state of Texas. Well, the possibilities for bribery and corruption are Texas-sized, and uh, Congress took advantage of them. Um, for good measure, the president intervened to save his private secretary, accused of complicity in the so-called whiskey ring, which defrauded the U.S. Treasury of millions. Apparently, on the theory that charity begins at home, Grant took care of his household, even before he rewarded the old soldiers with whom he had fought the war, and who now organized themselves into flag-waving lobbies, equally in love with patriotism and pensions. Abel Corwin was a 61-year-old lobbyist who married the president's spinster sister, Virginia, for reasons having less to do with romance than roguery. As it happened, Corbin was the agent of unscrupulous Wall Street speculators led by Jay Gould and Jim Fisk. It was said of Fisk that he was first in war, first in peace, and first in the pockets of his countrymen. <laughs> Together, this unholy trinity set out to corner the gold market. Having secured appointment of a co-conspirator as head of the New York Treasury Office, in September 1869, with Grant away from Washington, they went on a gold-buying spree. Panic ensued, yet it was short-lived. Rejecting Corbin's appeal not to intervene, Grant acted swiftly to foil the scheme, directing the Secretary of the Treasury to sell $4 million in government gold reserves. It gives you an idea of the size of the government and the economy, that you could break the back of this um, catastrophic event by selling off $4 million of gold. For good measure, he had Julia, uh, Mrs. Grant, write to Corbin, warning him of certain ruin should the president's brother-in-law be implicated in the scam. Interesting. He didn't write. He had Julia write. To this day, the question of Julia's own involvement, raised by the timely delivery of $25,000 in cash to the White House, remains a favorite historical parlor game. No less important, Grant insisted that the American economy itself be based on gold. The first president to call for a line-item veto, he issued more vetoes than all his predecessors combined, none more courageous or politically foolhardy than an 1874 bill to inflate the currency and thereby relieve distressed farmers. Under Grant, the national debt was significantly reduced, and the United States went from being a debtor to a creditor nation. In other ways, Grant's presidency differs from the corrupt bacchanal depicted by most historians. For one thing, his Whiggish sentiments did not ensure harmonious relations with the strutting peacocks of Capitol Hill. Grant took a special dislike to the imperious Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, single-handedly torpedoed the president's idea of annexing the Dominican Republic as a refuge for freed blacks. This was a variation on the old colonization scheme to which Lincoln and others had uh, 
committed themselves years uh, earlier. Um, it was a, a way out, Grant thought, of an impossible situation uh, that Reconstruction had, had de really degenerated into. Um, he was depressed by the fact, but he didn't see any alternative. He believed that his countrymen were irretrievably racist and that um, out of justice to the black man, newly freed, um, the United States owed them a place of refuge. And his idea was to buy the Dominican Republic. Uh, displaying a caustic wit for which he was little credited, Grant called Senator Sumner, quote, a narrow head. His eyes are so close together he can peek through a gimlet hole without blinking. On another occasion, informed that Sumner didn't agree with the Bible, Grant replied, that's because he didn't write it. Mm. Publicly acknowledging the racism of his countrymen, Grant played a key role in enactment of the 15th Amendment and the 1875 Civil Rights Act. He did not hesitate to employ federal troops to suppress the Ku Klux Klan and other instruments of Southern terror against newly enfranchised freedmen. History has tended to blame his successor for the so-called bargain of 1877, under which federal troops were withdrawn from the South in exchange for peaceful acquiescence in the election of Rutherford B. Hayes. In fact, by the time Hayes took office, only two southern states remained under the control of Republican regimes committed to black equality. In withdrawing federal troops from South Carolina and Louisiana, Hayes merely nailed the barn door shut long after the horse had escaped. It was Grant, ordinarily a master equestrian, who had let the horse out of the barn. General Grant apologized in his final State of the Union address saying he meant well, and after all, he wasn't a professional politician, as if that would excuse everything. He then went on, um, he decided to run for a third term in 1880. He did something very smart. He left the country um, and spent the next two years on a round-the-world tour being lionized, hoping that people with short memories um, would forget that and, and would take great pride in the fact that Grant was being hailed by Queen Victoria and everyone... Um, he also displayed, he had a delightful, wry sense of humor. Um, he famously mocked his own lack of cultural pretensions, saying he only knew two, two tunes. One was Yankee Doodle and the other wasn't. Um, he also said, he went to Venice and uh, he said it would be, be a great town if someone would only drain all those canals. Um, in any event, it would be hard to imagine a less favorable circumstance for any new president than the sullen, bitterly divided nation that inaugurated Hayes on March 4, 1877. Many Democrats boycotted the ceremony, protesting the methods used to secure Hayes' victory over their candidate, Governor Samuel J. Tilden of New York. Critics openly mocked Hayes as his fraudulency. Not since 1825, when John Quincy Adams was elected by the House of Representatives, following allegations of a corrupt bargain involving the sale of the State Department, had presidential legitimacy been so in doubt. And Adams, one term, had been a train wreck of embarrassments. That is the word, I think, to keep in mind. There are presidents, four, I guess you could say, beginning with John Quincy Adams, um, certainly Hayes, Benjamin Harrison, and George W. Bush, all of whom lost the popular vote. And yet, were constitutionally elected president. 
and over each a cloud of legitimacy hung. And it's fascinating to see how each, in effect, established or failed to establish uh, their legitimacy. Um, John Quincy Adams is remembered today largely for his post-presidential career. And thank you, Steven Spielberg, you know, uh, for reminding us that Adams was well ahead of his time in his opposition to slavery. Uh, Benjamin Harrison isn't remembered by anyone today, um, but uh, that's another story. Um, and then there's Hayes. Uh, to Henry Adams, the new president was, quote, a third-rate non-entity whose only recommendation is that he is obnoxious to no one. But appearances were deceiving. In his letter formally accepting the Republican nomination, Ohio's three-term governor called for an overhaul of the nation's notoriously corrupt civil service. The reform should be thorough, radical, and complete, said Hayes. Even more stunning was his pledge to serve a single four-year term. The last president to make that promise. And indeed, before he, in his last speech as president, he recommended a constitutional amendment for a single six-year term as president. Interesting idea. Just as a century later, it took the veteran anti-communist Richard Nixon to open China, so it fell to Hayes, the amiable career politician from the Republican heartland, to plead the cause of political reform. As President Hayes would have need of all his political gifts, the House was in Democratic hands for his entire term, the Senate for the second half. In fact, congressional contempt toward the executive was bipartisan. On the other hand, there's nothing like the White House to cause even a lifelong legislator to shed his belief in legislative supremacy. Hayes killed an act passed by Congress to restrict Chinese immigration. The president vetoed seven successive appropriation bills to which his former colleagues had attached unacceptable conditions. Having named a cabinet in which ability counted for more than cronyism, early in his term, Hayes issued an executive order forbidding all federal office holders from managing party politics. In his words, quote, party leaders should have no more influence in appointments than other equally respectable citizens. Hopefully he could do better than that. <clears throat> no less committed to the reform agenda was the first lady. Now, lightning may or may not strike twice, but don't tell me that history never repeats itself. If you doubt my word, just imagine a polarizing woman deemed by her critics to be overeducated, excessively opinionated, and far too influential in her unelected position. A strong-willed social reformer and deft political operator, she hailed from a long line of fiery crusaders. And for all her attention to the social amenities, whether inaugurating the White House Easter egg roll or launching a short-lived fad with her ornamental hair combs, her real objective was nothing less than to redefine the traditional role of women in America. Her name was Lucy Webb Hayes. And far from the blue-stocking lemonade Lucy of popular legend, Mrs. Rutherford B. Hayes was a feminist heroine, the most popular and reviled first lady until Eleanor Roosevelt. Her, in her words, woman's mind is as strong as man's, equal in all things, and superior in some. Born in 1831, Lucy lost her father, an Ohio doctor, when she was two. Family tradition supplied his place. The Webbs came from a long line of reformers, equally fervent in their advocacy of public education, temperance, and the abolition of slavery. 
at the Wesleyan Female College in Cincinnati. She is, by the way, the first First Lady to get a college degree. Lucy studied rhetoric, geometry, and moral sciences. She developed an early, very unladylike interest in politics. When the Civil War broke out and her lawyer husband joined Ohio's Fighting 23rd Regiment, Lucy said she wished she could raise a battalion of women to serve the Union cause at Fort Sumter. Another field of action opened during her husband's governorship. Despite giving birth to eight children in 20 years, she maintained a lively interest in public affairs, visiting state prisons and mental hospitals, and raising funds to construct a facility for war orphans. In the White House, Lucy proved an outspoken supporter of votes for women, to which radical viewpoint she converted the man she called Rudd 40 years in advance of their countrymen. Outraged that the unfinished Washington Monument should disfigure the capital name for the first president, Mrs. Hayes convinced her husband to secure a congressional appropriation with which to complete the job. Himself a devotee of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who attended church services mostly to please his devout wife, when asked his sectarian preferences, President Hayes declared himself close to Methodism since he slept every night with one of that persuasion. The First Lady's far-flung campaign for temperance won her millions of fans and more than a few detractors. Sniffed the Boston Post, Mr. Hayes will, during the absence of Mrs. Hayes, be acting president. <laughs> According to the acerbic Mrs. Henry Adams, Lucy was, quote, quite nice-looking, dark with smooth black hair, combed low over the ears and a high comb behind. Her dress a plain, untrimmed black silk, a broad white Smyrna lace tie around her neck. No jewelry. Mrs. Adams was decidedly less complimentary on the subject of the Hayes parting gift to the White House, an artistically stunning set of Havling China that realistically portrayed American flora and fauna. Clover Adams, for one, claimed that it was impossible to have a dinner conversation while staring at a coyote about to leap. It was, however, it's interesting, it was Ford's favorite china in the White House. Mrs. Ford loved it. About this same time, Clover's husband, whose sense of political impotence was on a level with his feelings of cultural displacement, recounted his unsuccessful plea with a cabinet officer to use patience and tact when dealing with members of the House of Representatives. You can't use tact with a congressman, said the presidential counselor. A congressman is a hog. You must take a stick and hit him on the snout. <laughs> but if a congressman is a hog, thought Adams, then what is a senator? He quickly answered his own question. Quote, the most troublesome task of a reform president was that of bringing the Senate back to decency, which is precisely what Rutherford Hayes set out to do in the spring of 1877. Hayes once said, fighting battles is like courting girls. Those who make the most pretensions and are boldest usually win. His inaugural address, true to form, contained the memorable declaration, quote, he serves his party best who serves his country best. More surprising still, Hayes governed as if he meant it. Within weeks of taking office, he launched an investigation into the nation's largest custom houses where corruption and influence peddling were an expensive way of life. Now, today, we don't think about custom houses. We don't think about customs. The, Fed, the government is floating on taxes, uh, income, personal, government, uh, business, and the like. 
In the 19th century, most government revenue, there was no personal income tax. It was disappeared after the war. The government depended upon tariffs, in effect, protectionism. When goods came into the country, they came through the Custom House. The New York Custom House, two-thirds of all the, all the goods coming into the country came through New York. So, again, uh, there was a lot of money uh, floating around. Inevitably, this position brought Hayes into conflict with the imperious boss of New York State politics, Senator Roscoe Conkling, and Conkling's agent in the nation's largest custom house, the elegant grafter Chester Allen Arthur. It soon became apparent that the New York Custom House was exactly what the New York Times called it, quote, the most complete and offensive example of the need of that reform in the civil service which President Hayes has promised. Favoritism and inefficiency were the least of Arthur's offenses. Salaries were padded and bribes accepted as a natural cost of doing business. As party workers, those on Arthur's payroll were expected to kick back part of their salaries to Republican coffers, 4% for an assistant appraiser, 2% for a chief clerk. Not surprisingly, many earned outside incomes. Others were none too scrupulous about showing up for work at all. When the Presidential Commission recommended substantial reductions in staffing and an end to partisan oversight, Hayes concurred enthusiastically. Said Hayes, no assessments for political purposes on officers or subordinates should be allowed. No useless officer or employee should be retained. No officer should be required or permitted to take part in the management of political organizations, caucus conventions, or election campaigns. Needless to say, none of this sat well with Roscoe Conkling. One of Hayes' friends described the arrogant senator whose love for the Union had proved insufficient to make him wear its uniform in the late conflict as, quote, invincible in peace and invisible in war. <laughs> When it came to the defense of his political machine, however, Conkling was a one-man army. To comply with Hayes' orders would mean an end to his domination of the Empire State. Realizing this, Conkling threw down the gauntlet, ordering cronies to ignore the president's order prohibiting federal office holders from partisan activities. Hayes, just as determined to enforce his rule, insisted that Chester Arthur quit the Custom House in favor of a reform candidate. Theodore Roosevelt, Sr. Conkling raged at this assault on senatorial prerogatives. In a tense White House confrontation, lawmakers registered their own protest. From his desk drawer, the president took a copy of the Republican platform of 1876. He invited his callers to read its pledges regarding civil service reform. We must not forget, said Hayes, that I am president of the whole country, not of any party. Cooperation could not come at the price of reform. I am clear that I am right, the president confided to his diary. I believe that a large majority of the best people are in full accord with me. In this, he was undoubtedly right, but the best people did not necessarily include a majority of the United States Senate. Under the circumstances, Conkling and his allies had little difficulty defeating Roosevelt's nomination. Hayes promptly submitted new candidates to run the New York Custom House. Once again, Conkling stamped his foot, curled his lip, and pointed his finger at the man he disdained as Granny Hayes. The impasse lasted until January 1878, when White House Secretary appeared at the doors of the Senate with a wheelbarrow load of documents. 
Together, these were enough to convince even a majority of senators that Hayes did not exaggerate the odor of corruption permeating the Custom House under Conkling and Arthur. As news of his triumph circulated, the abstemious Hayes was said to be in a jubilant frame of mind. According to one reporter, the buttermilk flowed at the White House like water. <laughs> Vindication of another kind was soon at hand, given Conkling's humiliation at the hands of a former governor of Rhode Island named William Spray, with whose wife the amorous senator from New York had been conducting a highly indiscreet affair. All Washington was abuzz with the story of Conkling clutching his trousers and making his escape through a bedroom window, one step ahead of a gun-toting husband. Not above a chuckle at his enemy's expense, Hayes wrote in his diary, this exposure of Conkling's rottenness will do good in one direction. It will weaken his political power, which is bad and only bad. Yet Hayes, too, had been weakened, albeit for a different reason. In pressing the case for reform, he had mortally offended machine politicians within his own party. By the spring of 1879, newspaper polls testified to a grassroots movement demanding the return of, who else, Ulysses Grant. No one was louder in his insistence on turning back the clock than Roscoe Conkling. In the end, however, Republicans nominated another dark horse from Ohio named James Garfield who would give his life to a deranged office seeker. Thus was the cause of civil service reform tragically advanced. For their part, Rudd and Lucy returned home to Spiegel Grove, their beloved estate in Fremont, Ohio. Ex-President Hayes joined the Peabody Educational Fund, taking a particular interest in the education of Southern blacks. Less than a year after leaving office, he helped to bury the assassinated Gurfield. In the summer of 1885, he rode in Grant's funeral procession in New York, sharing a carriage with none other than Chester Arthur, the one-time Custom House boss whose removal he had orchestrated and who had gone on against all odds to become an effective presidential reformer and champion of civil service. Emulating Lucy's outspokenness, Hayes became more unguarded in his own comments, especially those dealing with the concentration of wealth. He made no secret of his fear that excessive fortunes would undermine economic and social democracy. For 10 years, Hayes served as president of the National Prison Association. Someone asked him why he lent his name to the cause of prison reform, and Hayes said, we prefer to give special attention to the unpopular questions, to those that need friends. In June 1889, he lost his greatest friend when Lucy suffered a stroke in her bedroom at Spiegel Grove. She is in heaven, wrote her grieving husband. She is where all the best of earth have gone. Two years later, Hayes returned to the South, where he called national attention to the sorry state of education among former slaves and their children. The following year, he attended William McKinley's inauguration as governor, looking on as his young wartime aide, who was already being groomed for the White House, took possession of the office that had come to Hayes three times. On the morning of Sunday, January 8, 1893, Hayes went to visit Lucy's grave in the local cemetery. That evening, he wrote in his diary of his longing to join her. At the Cleveland rail, uh, rail station a few days later, he experienced severe chest pains. I would rather die at Spiegel Grove, he told onlookers, than to live anywhere else. His wish was granted on the night of January 17th. President Grover Cleveland 
made the long train journey from Washington to attend his predecessor's funeral. He was coming to see me, explained Cleveland, but he is dead, and I will go to him. The gesture would have touched Hayes, for by his move, Cleveland buried all the old charges about the disputed election of 1876, along with the men who'd won it. His fraudulency, long since relegated to memory, was replaced by Hayes the Reconciler. History repeated itself in our own time when Richard Nixon died and Bill Clinton delivered a eulogy at his funeral. It is only fair to judge a man in his own terms and in the context of his own times. Traditionally, historians assess leaders by what they finish while in office. Perhaps we should credit them as well for what they begin, often against great odds. It is proverbial that the first step of a long journey is the most difficult. Hayes set America on the road to political reform. In rising above the party system that produced him, he dispelled the fog of cynicism that periodically settles over the American political scene. Even further ahead of her times, Lucy Webb Hayes created her own platform, established her own credibility, won her own audience. Together, Lucy and Rudd speak to our age with surprising moral force. Not long before his death, Hayes observed to a friend that his marriage had been the most interesting fact of his life. It is a sentiment from which few historians would dissent. More than a century later, Rudd and Lucy, especially Lucy, remain the gold in the Gilded Age. Thank you very much. Questions, comments, observations. Hmm. Wyoming did get in with, with, with its women. It was delayed, um, but um, it came in in the 1890s. I don't know. It's interesting. I, I've, in theory, I think it adds to a president's clout to be to hold the possibility over Congress and the rest of the political process that you know you're not getting rid of me anytime soon. I, and and beyond that, in theory, it seems to me that people should be able to vote for someone. I mean, I I don't like the the constitutional amendment that. You know, that the Republicans rammed through over FDR's dead body, making sure that the president couldn't be elected to a third term. I think if you want to vote for someone for a third term, you should have that option. Um, on the other hand, opposed to theory is practice. And the fact is, as we're all experiencing right now, second terms, as a rule, there are exceptions, but as a rule, second terms do not turn out very well. Few presidents leave office at the peak of their popularity. They're worn out, they're burned out, along with their White House staffs. And um, it's an intriguing idea. Uh, I mean, I'd like to see a debate, uh, you know. Um, France has a seven-year presidency. General de Gaulle, when he created the Fifth Republic, instituted this. It was tailored to his personality, just as the, our Constitution was to General Washington's. And the French discovered or concluded after a while that seven years is long, a little long. So they cut it to five years. But you can be reelected. 
I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that six years, if, if you had, look, we're not going to have a parliamentary form of government. We have a presidential form of government. If you, you know, rigidly lock in a term at six years and something goes disastrously awry um, and you're stuck for three or four long, long years, I don't know. You know, I, it, it's funny. I think there – I'll, I'll answer your question, but I'll preface it by saying I think they're all admirable in a number of ways because these are women who, first of all, they never ran for anything. They, they weren't elected to anything. Um, they aren't paid anything. They are often subjected – for 200 years has been the case – to criticism for what they wear or the, how their children conduct themselves or what taste they have in interior decoration. I mean – or, or what causes they have, or if they don't have causes. Um, it is in many ways, you know, Margaret Truman said it was the second toughest job in America. Uh, I, and I think it's very tough. So I think every single one of these women, you know, first of all, when you do research into the history of First Ladies, you'll discover the fact that many of them are more interesting than their husbands. Um, more complex, more, well, because they haven't been distorted by politics. They're, they're human beings three-dimensional human beings. Um, boy. Um, there are so many. You know, there are, I mean, let me, let, me, let me name a couple that you, you don't think about because everyone knows about Eleanor and Lady Bird and, um, and certainly Mrs. Ford. But um, Lou Henry Hoover is virtually unknown. She's in Eleanor Roosevelt's shadow. But she's a remarkable woman, uh, first woman to get a geology degree from Stanford. She spoke five languages. Um, they had two children. He, of course, was a great mining engineer. They traveled the world. By the time Herbert Jr. was five years old, he'd been around the world eight times. Lou didn't want to waste time on ocean liners. So first of all, she designed a cradle exclusively for use on ocean liners. And then uh, they decide, she and her husband decided rather than waste time, they'd put time to good use. And their idea of doing that was to translate the 16th century Latin scholar, uh, mining scholar, Agricola. And she did most of the work. She was the linguist. Um, at the time of Teapot Dome, her husband's in the war Harding cabinet, Lou convenes a conference specifically about what women can do to elevate the tone of politics and to pursue law enforcement and ethics in government. Um, remarkable woman. But again, almost totally forgotten today. If the Depression hadn't come along, she, she's the first she made history by inviting a black woman to the White House. It's hard to believe. Until 1929, no black woman had ever been socially welcomed to the White House. And Mrs. Hoover did. Uh, it was Mrs. Oscar DePriest, the wife of a Chicago congressman. Uh, there were women, other women uh, that day at the White House who would not shake her hand. Uh, and Lou went out of her way to to spend the time with her. She apologized to her husband, not for what she did, but for the controversy that had arisen. And he said, don't worry, Lou, you did the right thing. And one of the consolations of Orthodox religion is the fact the Texas legislature had called for his impeachment. That's the purpose of this. So she said, he said one of the consolations of Orthodox religion is the fact that it provides a hot hell for the Texas legislature. <laughs> 
But I would recommend almost every first lady is worth knowing more about than we do. They're all interesting and in many ways um, in, in a thankless position. Yeah? Have you any personal feelings or convictions about electing a president to win the electoral power? I do, and I'm, uh, it's, it's not a majority sentiment, but I think it goes to the nature of what kind of constitutional re republic we are. Um, I'm not a hidebound conservative, but in this particular case, I think the case is yet to be made for scrapping the Electoral College. There's, a, there's an obvious, simple, overwhelming, apparent logic, which is it's democratic. Um, but lest we forget, the Constitution did not create a pure democracy. It created a government both, both of individuals and of states. And the, and the best evidence of that is, look at how the Congress is allocated. The fact is, you have two houses, and the compromise was the House of Representatives of, quote, People's House is allocated on the basis of population. That would be consistent with, a, with getting rid of the Electoral College. But the Senate, every state has two votes, which is you know, consistent with keeping the Electoral College. I, I think also, in practical terms, the Electoral College forces candidates for office to go to places that they would not go to if it was strictly a popular vote. You'd go where the votes were. You'd, 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 you'd spend all your time in California or New York, kind of, you know, sort of run up your tally in places where you knew you were, if you were a Democrat, uh, if you were a Republican, you'd probably spend most of your time in, in the South. Um, um, but but you wouldn't go to Alaska, you wouldn't go to the Dakotas, you wouldn't go to a lot of places. Well, except in, in 2000, remember, both Bush and Gore spent lots of time in Iowa and, uh, and um, you know, other places like that, which I, I'm confident would not be the case if it were strictly a popular vote. So. You know, my mind's, I won't have anything to say about it, my mind's open, but it seems to me the case has not yet been made to take a, I, and also I'm a true conservative with a capital C when it comes to amending the Constitution. I don't think it should be done unless there's an overwhelming um, reason, justification for it. Yeah. The nature of the beast in those days was that there weren't many people outside. It was, it was, you know, Americans were born and they were registered as male or female and Republican and Democrat, maybe Methodist or Catholic. Um, I mean, literally, they, the, people identified themselves. Um, you had turnout in those years, 1870s, 1880s. First of all, it was a time of, of, of incredible balance. Most of those presidential elections are very close. But look at the number. You had 90% turnout of the electorate. And it's because people, people really identified with the parties. They operated within that system. There weren't a lot of outside influences, as would be the case today. There weren't a lot of outside associations. You didn't have the mass media, you know, in some ways calling the shots. It was a, it was a very, very closed, if you will, 
uh, in some ways, insular culture, but it was a culture that produced much greater participation than is the case today. Well, that's good. Yeah. But for one thing, there were just a whole lot fewer of us. You know? I mean, we're talking about a country with 30 million people, 40 million later in the, the period. Um, and, uh, and we didn't have the mass media. We didn't have the diversions. We didn't have the entertainments that we have today. Politics was our entertainment. Politics was... You know, it fulfilled a, a variety of roles that today no longer is the case. I mean, today it's entertainment, but it's, you know, John Stewart and Saturday Night Live. Um, but anyway, anything else? Yeah. There's a lot more, believe me. Well, I think we fought back and forth in a number of ways, but I think it's more war and the aftermath of war. Um, I don't don't misunderstand me, but you know the fact of the matter is war is an incubator of innovation in many many ways. It is also a great centralizer of authority. Well, um, you know the Constitution is like an accordion, and um, inevitably there's a reaction after the war. If you look at every single war. Um, certainly after the Civil War, certainly after World War One, to some degree after World War Two, certainly after Vietnam, you see that the presidency, which has so expanded, um, is in many ways under great pressure from Congress and other forces. Um, but but the, with that with that level of innovation and that level of centralization, I mean the fact is. For a long time, we all thought of the robber barons as robber barons. One of the fascinating things that's happening now among historians, and I think it's even beginning to percolate out to the general public, is we're looking at them in a, in a different light. We don't see them simply as whiskered, tobacco-chewing uh, vulgarians uh, with pot bellies and dollar signs on their vests. Um, they are the second generation of American revolutionaries. It was an economic revolution that they brought about. Uh, they laid the groundwork for modern industrial America with all that that portends. That is a direct result of the Civil War. Um, before the Civil War, most people never had any contact with the federal government except from the post office. With the Civil War, you had the first income tax. Um, you know, you, you had all sorts of, some people thought, abuses of, of executive power. Once the war ended, there was a reaction against that, and you had a presidency that was weakened for most of the rest of the most of the rest of the century. Uh, but even again, every one of these Gilded Age presidents, all of whom tend to collectively be written off as non-entities, every one of them displayed courage in his own way. Hayes, I chose to focus on Hayes because, again, the cliche is 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 so entrenched. And the reality is so much more interesting. But I could say that of Chester Arthur. I could say it of Benjamin Harrison, certainly Grover Cleveland. 
Andrew Johnson's beyond the pale. He's he's worse than you than you than you heard. But um, <laughs> we're still recovering from Andrew Johnson. Um, anyway, I know you you had one last question. Are you an Andrew Johnson fan? I'm sorry. You going to make the case? Well, that won't take long. Mm. Well, I think it was enormous. And again, frankly, there's a certain amount of crony capitalism, you know. But you know what? Um, look, look, look at what they produced. Rockefeller, I'm, I'm biased. You know, I'm writing about Nelson, which means, you know, you have to know about John D. Um, John D. broke a lot of, a lot of rules. Uh, fortunately for him, they were not yet codified in the law. But do you know, if, if you were poor... John D. Rockefeller single-handedly reduced the price of kerosene by 75%. Um, what he did was, of course, was clear out all the competitors, all the inefficiency, as he put it. He said the age of the individual is past. Curious sort of observation. And you can understand why lots of Americans were appalled by this. But they were, they might have been appalled, but they were perfectly willing to, you know, to take advantage of the, of the cheaper product um, that, that he that he produced um, modernization standardization there's a reason it's called the standard oil company uh, they set they set the standard in many ways they also bribed legislators um, they also abused uh, authority um, they Nelson Rockefeller once said um, my great grand my grandfather didn't break the law but he did cause a lot of laws to be written <laughs> 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 it's a, a nice way of finessing it. Last question. You mentioned you're writing a book on Nelson and Rockefeller. Maybe you won't have to wait till you read the book, but I, uh, a friend of mine wrote, wrote a book, and I was wondering if you had a chance, or you might have written a book in a little after-baking with a quote uh, by Irwin and Van Allen. Um, what, what, what did your friend, what role did your friend uh, play as an employee? I mean, what, what did... Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, that's going to be the best chapter of the book, and I'm not going to give it away. So. And I, <laughs> I will tell you, don't tell Happy. I once, uh, I once said, with my characteristic gift for stepping in it, um, saying, thinking something and then saying it, you know. I mean, anyway, I, I, my problem is I think it and then I say it instead of just thinking of it. I once, I once <laughs> threatened to entitle the, the last chapter of my book, Coming and Going. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> <laughs>